Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers, and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello, and welcome to a special edition of the Hopcast. Technically, show number 64. 64, yes. But we are at the London Book Fair. You can probably hear behind us... The hubbub. The hubbub, yes. We're overlooking the main hall, the grand hall, in fact, of Olympia, where all the big publishers have their amazing-looking stands. Oh, they're very impressive, aren't they? Yeah, These it's big pretty boxes. flash. Uh, and then away to... As we look down into the atrium of the grand hall, we're up on the, on the first floor, we look down, there are uh, rows and rows of, of desks... And it looks like it could be an exam hall, but what it I'm actually is... I'm thinking speed dating. Yes, it could be speed dating, <laughs> yes. Uh, well, it feels like that's what we've got to do while we're here in, in, in many ways because, um, you know, we're sort of knocking on those... or approaching those desks and uh, asking for people to have a chat with us. But that's where all the agents are and that's where all of the rights uh, experts are. So you've got the publishers, the big trade publishers in front of us now yeah. and, and national stands as well up on the top deck where we are it's slightly smaller operations but also it's where we've been spending quite a lot of our day in, in amongst the indie publishers and the indie author community where we feel at home and we've seen some of the people that you've heard on this podcast before we've had a chance to meet them in the flesh Simon McLeave we had a quick chat, a chat to just before he was uh, I think he was winning a, uh, a, an award he was the up selfies. for an award wasn't he was up he? for yeah. the selfies uh, we've just had a lovely conversation with Rachel McLean, who was uh, on the show, what, six, seven weeks ago? Something like that. Yeah, uh, reminiscing on the random question. Absolutely. And we have spoken to one of the most successful British indie authors in the crime scene currently, J.D. Kirk, or Barry Hutchison, as he is known <laughs> by his family. So Barry joins us and uh, tells us, you know, again, a really fantastically open and illuminating interview oh, about about how he's got to the position he is now, where he's regularly number one in the uh, Amazon charts. And he was on the Amazon stand, but we, we had about 40 minutes to talk to him. So that'll be our big feature interview in a few moments' time. Uh, we've got other things lined up for you for future specials. We're going to be doing two more shows here from the London Book Fair. Yeah, one each day. One each day. So we've got a, quite a number of guests lined up. Some of them surprising. And we're going to be joined tomorrow by our very own Robert Dawes. Uncle Bob is coming with he us. He is. We're going to wheel him around like a, like a uh, I don't know, uh, a big celebrity. Exhibit A? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> he, I bet he's recognised by, well, for instance, we've got the, uh, uh, there's the Arab Publishers League. Uh, stand there. I bet he's huge there. I bet the Royal still plays very big in, in Arab countries or something like that. Wouldn't it be like funny that. though if we happen to walk past one of the country stands and he gets mobbed because yeah, the Royal is he's currently. huge in Estonia. <laughs> <laughs> that would be very very good. Um, look, our impressions of London Book Fair. It's exactly you know we've we've visited very casually once uh, when it was last held here, and 
uh, it's not dissimilar. No. You know, the stands look very, very similar. It's very and similar. Thousands and thousands of people here. It's a bit quieter now. It's nearly six o'clock in the evening and the, the show is about to shut for the day. But the fact is that it is an overwhelming experience when you first come here. Yeah. And it's not just the bustle, is it? It's the sense of everyone else seems to know what they're, they're you know, they've got a, they're walking with such purpose. The sort of thing you don't see frankly where we live in Staffordshire no well I'm I've made three observations three key observations of the London Book Fair the first is there are lots of tables and chairs yet there's nowhere to sit true because all the stands and you pay the, for the privilege yeah you? you pay for the privilege so the place is full of tables and chairs but you, you we couldn't find anywhere to sit so we actually sat by the balcony on the floor having a coffee this morning that's true. That's true. Yeah, I've, I've sat cross-legged for the first time since leaving junior school today. Uh, it wasn't comfortable. I'm not the most flexible human, and uh, it took you about half an hour to get me up again. But um, yeah, I, that's and the the coffee. I mean, you were you said, oh, go you, look, go and find somewhere to sit. I'll <laughs> queue for the coffee. You bet you regret that decision. I do. I was in the queue for 40 minutes. They got the order wrong, and they got stroppy with me when I said I only want one decaf. Yeah. Um, it so was, yeah, that wasn't pleasant. I think the other thing that strikes you when you first come here is the diversity of what is published. Uh, the incredible range of things that people are prepared to pay money for to read. Well, that leads me to my second key observation of the London Book Fair. The yes. place is full of books, yet you can't buy them. That is true. That is true. Sometimes they'll give you one. We've, we've met, uh, we're going to get him on the podcast because he was such a fascinating character. Oh, pineapple guy. Pineapple guy. Well, there's a guy called Steve, and he, he was um, not far from the, the indie section of, of authors, and he's written a book based around the pineapple being the metaphor for his philosophy of business and life. Uh, he's paid a lot of money to have a stand here, I must admit, and he has a pineapple on his desk, and uh, that got us talking to him. It was, was my fa- fault. I yeah. saw his pineapple. Well, I... you, you will always anything <laughs> quirky will catch your eye. Yeah. That's that's always the case. And uh, he was quirky. He certainly was. So we'll, I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll speak to him for your benefit sometime in the next couple of days because yeah, we'll catch him again. The world needs more pineapple man. We need more Steve. How many pigeons are flying around the hall at the moment? That's three. Oh yeah. That's bizarre. Yeah, there. Not that anyone can see that, but yes, yeah, so no. there's three pigeons. Three pigeons flying around this gigantic. Hall. I have one final observation mm. about the London Book Fair. Yes. It is incredibly colourful. It is. It there's is pink, vibrant. There's blue, there's purple, there's... Well, I mean, if you haven't, you know, even there's themed carpets as well uh, that, that for the different areas, and particularly as we're standing very close to the children's books Which section. Which is bright pink. Oh, gosh, yes, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, they're having a little wine reception for pretty books. But uh, is it... Who do preschool stuff by the look of it? But isn't that strange? So we're, we're just next to a section that is colourful and um, decorated for children, full of children's books, yet there are no children here. No. Nope. To appreciate how beautiful it is. No, nope. that's true. That's true. <laughs> it's been, um, it's, been a t- it, it's a difficult environment in terms of the number of people here. It gets very hot. It's epically huge place. So you can do your 10,000 steps just walking around the hall. But it is lovely when you bump into someone you know 
uh, or you make new f contacts and, and friends. And we've done a little bit of that today. So that's been a, a real pleasure. Uh, you know, we're, we're quite introverted. I mean, even though we do a podcast, it oh. sounds ridiculous. We are quite introverted. People are surprised when they find out how introverted we are. But we went back to the hotel at lunchtime and we stayed there for a couple of hours because we just needed to sort of... Yeah, decompress a little bit. sense of calm. And yeah, absolutely. My legs were killing me and I just wanted to elevate them. <laughs> I feel a lot better now, I must admit. But uh, I think once you got your first day, it's, it, it reminds me of when I used to cover the Olympics. You go to an Olympics game, Olympic Games and it takes about three days to cope with the pace of everything that's going on around you. The energy, the sheer numbers of people. And that's just in the broadcast centres. It's absolute bedlam. And eventually you get into your rhythm. Now, the trouble is this is only a three-day event, so you've got to get into your rhythm pretty quickly. And then go home. And then go <laughs> home. But I think, we, you know, I think tomorrow will be a day where we feel a lot more comfortable in the environment. There's Hopefully, always yeah. that first morning thing where it was so busy this morning when we first arrived. It was bedlam. And it was one of those things where you couldn't, if you were stood still for more than a second, you got mown over by somebody <laughs> heading somewhere with a sense of a business stride to them. So... Yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting place. But we've um, brought you a special interview uh, with J.D. Kirk, or Barry Hutchison. Um, and uh, he started his J.D. Kirk uh, pen name a few years ago and has been one of the poster boys, really, for British indie authors in terms of what can be achieved. And what was surprising in this interview, he's a very modest guy, lovely, lovely man, um, from his home in the Highlands, is how he's managed to achieve it without spending the megabucks <laughs> uh, by figuring out what people wanted to read and... And just making be, friends with them. And exactly. Building a, 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 a lovely audience that, that follow every move. Uh, and it's worked for him. And it was a, a really uh, enjoyable interview, I have to say. So let's speak to Barry Hutchison. Well, we'd like to welcome one of the most successful indie authors in the UK today, Barry oh, Hutchison or J.D. Kirk, as you yeah, right. Yeah, call me either one, I don't mind. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a great honour for us to, to have you here on the Hopcast Book Show. Thank you for joining us. No, thanks for having me. It's, uh, you've been on the KDP stand for today yeah. and uh, fielding all sorts of, of queries. What sort of things do people come to you to ask? Uh, it varies, really. There's some people come because they've, they've thought about self-publishing but never really started with it, never... Um, giving it a go so they're just looking for a bit of I think a lot of them are looking for a bit of a nudge to kind of to get started so they'll say I've been approaching publishers I haven't heard anything or um, I've had a couple of rejections and I'm thinking about self-publishing should I do it you know and I kind of go yeah yeah absolutely because I was traditionally published for 10 years and um, KDP kind of not only gave me a sort of financial freedom I didn't have before a creative freedom that I didn't have before as well so so I, I, I really I always recommend people that are that are maybe a bit scunnered with traditional publishing good Scottish word that yeah. Um, terrific yeah. to, uh, to give to give India a go and I think increasingly we're seeing it used to be seen as the fallback position was I'll self-publish and increasingly we're seeing people going no I'm not going to bother with the, the traditional publishing yeah, stuff so I'm just going straight into doing it myself and I think for me, I for, for 10 years I was writing books, but it was never enough to really pay all my bills. So I was constantly trying to come up with a business idea at the same time. So I had like five or six failed business ideas running alongside my books. 
And it's when I realised that the books were my business yeah. that that's when everything fell into place for me. And I went, okay, so my product is these books. And what's the best way of making money from this product? Is it by sending it to a publisher where it will be lost amongst several hundred other books that publisher's publishing that year? Or is the best thing for that book if, if I manage how it goes out into the world and how it's marketed? Um, and once I realised that, everything changed for me, really. Is that, in a sense, you know, having had those failed business ideas, mm-hmm. did that make it easier to take that leap? Or did that scare you because you'd had that, that, that failure, um, if you like? Not really, no. I think it just, it just made sense all of a sudden because I was, I was a full-time author, technically. I was a full-time children's author. What that generally means is that you get a little bit of money from writing books and you become a public speaker. You go into schools... We're fortunate in Scotland with the Scottish Book Trust and they will pay you to go into schools and you can talk to kids for an hour about writing or um, about your books or about books in general or do workshops or whatever and you get paid for doing that. Now most of my income came from doing that and the reason I got to do that was because I wrote books. So very little of my actual income came directly from books. That's very interesting, isn't it? People have this idea, don't they? Yeah, people think, oh, you're a public... A children's author, you're J.K. Rowling. (laughs) (laughs) And there's only one of her. Um, So, um, uh, yeah, uh, most children's authors that I know make the money through through speaking events. So you become a a, a kind of paid public speaker who's written some books. So I was a full-time author, so I didn't have to worry about giving up a job. I just thought, well, okay, I can. I'm not making a huge amount. I know the books are doing well; they've been well received. Publishers want me to publish more of them, so I know the product itself is is decent. And I've learned a bit from my multiple failed businesses about um, how to just structure a business and how to go how to go about taking that product and bringing it to market. Um, and it never worked before because I've never had a decent product. But then I thought, well, this is my product, and now all I have to do is apply what I've learned in those other businesses to bring it to market, and that's what I what I started doing, and I did that through KDP Publishing. But right. how, how difficult was that, though? Because surely, uh, presumably, your other businesses weren't books. No, my other businesses were a range of things. <laughs> they were all disasters. Um, so it was, yeah, it was just about learning it. It was about going, okay, so I know, I know the principles of um, I need to make people aware of this product and set this product at a price that is affordable to that customer. Um, so I knew those sort of basics of it. The details I had to learn from scratch. So I had no idea how I would market that book to, to um, those readers. No, I, I was working with um, writing for children prior to that, and the way you market to children is you go to their school and you tell them, I've got this book here. Now, I couldn't go around people's houses and go, do you want to <laughs> read this, this comedy sci-fi book, which is what I published at the time. So I had to find where that audience existed, you know, and it was like, well, well what I'm writing for is, is sci-fi geeks. So you would join, you know, sci-fi groups on, on Facebook and yeah. you would get to know people through, through there. And I, I, I hate the idea of, I'm really rubbish at marketing myself. I'm terrible at going on and going, read my book, is great. Um, <laughs> it's a very British thing. Yeah, it is. And I, so I kind of go, you know, uh, oh, and by the way, you know, I, I try and be helpful. I try to go on and go and make myself useful. I interact and I... I kind of you know, build relationships in the group and then go, oh, and by the way, you're probably not interested, but just in case, I've written these 12 books. That, you know, is, so. that is such a British... Yeah. Like, you're probably not interested. But, well, as know, I actually that. paid... A, a, I kind of mentioned it in the talk I was doing earlier on there. I, I got an, an advert done for the Space Team sci-fi books, 
and I got a guy to go on and he, he did this it was really American this really kind of kind of <laughs> upbeat sales pitch but it was if you're looking for a book that's like The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy but worse with Space Team you know and so I couldn't even bring myself to go no it's good it was like yeah it's, it's a bit like that but not as good as that so that so set your expectations low um, so that seems to work especially with, with humour people go yeah, sure. oh I see the joke there yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But I was being serious. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't a joke. It wasn't they thought serious. you were joking. Yeah, they though. thought, oh, he's having a laugh at his own expense. And I was like, no, I just I don't want to say it's good because you might not think so. So now you've reached a, a situation where you are one of the most successful indie authors on the KDP platform. So clearly there's been a, a mindset switch, I would imagine. Do you, do you still feel that sense of reticence of selling yourself? No, or? No, I still feel... I have to... What I've learned to do, I think, is... Uh, so the author part of my brain writes the book and then I have to switch over to a publisher part of the brain to write the Amazon description page or to, to write kind of any marketing that goes with it because if I write it as myself I, I just feel deeply uncomfortable at saying that I'm good at anything <laughs> no, I don't want to yeah. say you're going to enjoy this because I've written it but if I can switch to publisher mode and say okay Barry Hutchison or JD Kirk has written this it's much easier to sell it that way. So it is, it's almost like developing a kind of split personality to oh, go, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Go, you know, the, the publisher part does all these things yeah. and the author part just writes these books. And, and it's, it's, it's learning to do that has been the biggest mind shift for me, I think. But the, it's interesting, isn't it? The, the difference between, we, we try to explain this to our authors when we've signed them up and mm-hmm. we're starting to write their blurbs for them. The difference between the sales pitch blurb and what many of them think should be there which yeah. is a, a precy of the synopsis you know yeah. condensed into three paragraphs yeah. that's not presumably no. what you do no not at all no and I think the first, my first attempts were my first attempts were like a detailed blow by blow of everything that happens and then I thought well why would anyone read the book you know what I mean? they don't need to they don't need yeah. to they, they know what happens so it became very much finding what is the what is the hook what, who's, the, who's the main character what is the, the situation they're being thrown into and what's the hook that might make the reader want to read about that character in that situation and so all my, my kind of blurbs are now um, a, a variation on that it's that thing, I found something that worked for me it goes okay, this person, this happens this is the complication that you might be interested in you know, buy the book to read, read what happens I think it's very similar for us isn't it we, we have a, for, a formula for our blurbs now. To, to an extent yeah I mean I think you know, I mean, we have a process where we'll get the author's version, mm-hmm. then you'll have a go at it. Then you'll ignore and it. Rewrite it completely. <laughs> yeah. And then I'll, then and I'll, I'll go in. Tidy it up. Yeah. And I, w- what I tend to do is because I've come from a broadcast BBC journalism background uh-huh. where everything has to be colloquial to some extent yeah. and, and tightened yeah. to the nth degree. Uh, and that's what I do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a good process, actually. It is, yeah. I think and that's really important as well, author. yeah, yeah. Because a lot of times you look at blurbs and, and you know you could take three paragraphs out of that. Yeah. yeah. And it would not only tell the same information, but do so in a much more interesting way. So that less is more thing is really oh, important. absolutely, yeah. What about, though, that what we find so uncomfortable being indie publishers still, and we were debating this today when we found out we couldn't claim VAT on our Facebook ads, <laughs> but the, the marketing spend to be able to get to the, to the sort of sales that, that return a living, it's quite frightening, isn't it? Um, well, I've been really fortunate. Like, I, like I think I've, I've set out not to really 
do paid advertising as much as a lot of other authors do. Um, I kind of set out trying to build a community around my books um, and, and kind of grow them through word of mouth that way. So to start with, I, f- I first started spending five pound a day on Facebook ads and I was furious having to spend that money because being Scottish, you don't <laughs> like to part with them. So I, and I didn't do that until I was kind of three books in. Um, and at that point, you know, they were, they, were, they were making decent money. And I started that five pounds a day and I was really slow to build up. So now I talk to authors and, and, you know, and they're spending kind of, you know, 30, 40,000 pounds a month on, on marketing. And I think I spend about 3,000 pounds a month on, on advertising. Um, and uh, so I don't quite know. I think a lot of it is just, just luck and word of mouth. And I think it is going right, you know, it's, it's, especially with the crime books, I was very analytical. I thought, right, what is doing well? What does a what does a, a successful crime fiction novel cover look like? Um, regional stuff was doing well. I thought, okay, well, I know the Highlands really well, and that means I don't have to do any research as well, which is always a bonus. So I thought I'll set it around Why the Highlands. You know? Yeah, exactly. That's it, yeah. Set it around the Highlands. The thing that put me off writing crime fiction for a long time was actually that whole idea of research of going right. I need to know what the police do. I need to understand what. Yeah. And then I spent quite a bit of time researching it for the first book, and absolutely nothing made it in because police procedure was really boring. Yeah, it's quite dry. Tedious. So I was like, okay, I can write a book where 200 man hours are spent knocking on doors, and there's a team of 100 people involved, or I can go, I'll write an interesting story, and occasionally I'll use a police acronym. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, that's yeah. enough. That's the credibility. Because readers don't don't they don't want to know about what an actual police investigation is like because it's tedious. They want a dramatised version of that. They want a good story that makes them think, okay, this, yeah, this seems believable enough that the police might do this sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, because also you've got the, the separate system to the one that we're used to, being from England. You know, procurator, yeah, fiscal, yeah, and, and, yeah, yeah. and the different burdens of proof that, that, that yeah, apply it's complete, in Scottish. Completely different legal system. That's it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so, um, but yeah, but I think writing it to market has helped me immensely. It's going right. right what, what are people buying right now? And then. A, that's what I did to start with, certainly, and that got enough people interested in the books that it built an audience. And then they're now far more interested in the characters. It's like a, the the crime series has become like a soap opera. Yes. That has murders in it rather than a book predominantly about murders. Monique's book obviously has a, a real crime with with real consequences and victims and and you know the investigation and all that stuff happens. But all the feedback from the readers is about. Oh, he got a dog in this book. You know, that's really exciting. And, I, and so, the, one of the main detectives acquired a dog that was found at the scene of a, a crime, and it was going to be for that one book. But the amount of people that oh, emailed were, saying, yeah, "Oh, great, he's got a dog! I can't believe he's got a dog!" I'm so saying, you dare kill the dog? I had to keep the dog. Yeah, well, I killed a cat in book one, and I, I will never hear the end. No, 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 no. I killed a cat and three children. Nobody cares about the children. No, the no, cats. No. They all yeah. care about the cat. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, so I learned that lesson quickly. So never killing more animals. But the dog was supposed to be a one-off little joke. But people become so invested in the yeah. characters. They're like, oh, he needs a dog. Yeah, he needs. That's yeah. just what he needs is a dog to to cheer him up. You know. So you're going. Well, well now, I've now got to write this dog in. <laughs> and and it worked brilliantly. The dog has been a great addition to it, and people, you know, it so, works really well. But it's it's a soap. With murders. Do you think, to some extent, then the readers are writing the book for you? They're giving you things that they want. I think I think you've certainly got to listen to them. Yeah, like like um, 
I know that if I went and killed off one of the main characters, there would be a mutiny. You know, I would be, you would find my head in a spike somewhere. But I wouldn't want to kill them off anyway. There's, there's a certain, there's, there, are, there are main characters who have died in the series because I wanted that sense of jeopardy to yes, know absolutely, that yeah. any of them can die at any time. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm not saying I'm, I will never kill off any of the characters, but I will have to brace myself for the backlash that will result in that. Um, and I know if anyone who reads it is listening to this now, I will get emails about this, this <laughs> interview, about this, this point in the interview saying, do not kill off any of the characters or we will hurt you. Um, so I think it's, it's about listening to the readers, but ultimately the story you have to write, you, as the author, you have to write the story that you believe in. If I went, I'm going to write my story dictated by what the readers have suggested, because they've all suggested plots and they've all suggested different things. If I was to write the stories based on that, they would no longer be my books. And that's, they're buying my books. They want my story, not theirs, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So um, I think it's being aware of what your reader's looking for, but first and foremost, you're writing that book for yourself, based yeah. on the story you want to tell. How influenced are you by the strength of Scottish crime writing as a whole, the tartan noir I mean, scene? to be honest, before I started writing crime fiction, I hadn't really read any. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And, and what, what's interesting is a lot of people say, oh, it's really fresh, it's really different. To, and I was like, that's because I've got no idea what it's supposed to be <laughs> yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but, but yeah, I mean, Scottish crime fiction is, is, is doing brilliantly. You know, I mean, Val McDermott, Deneen Rankin, and, uh, and, and Chris um, Brookmeyer. Chris Brookmeyer, yeah, yeah, I mean, I love Chris Brookmeyer. Oh, Chris, I Brookmeyer do too. Chris Brookmeyer is the exception. When I said I hadn't read any crime yeah. fiction before that, yeah, I read pretty good. much all Chris Brookmeyer stuff. And that, um, that kind of humour that, that, that is in all his books, that's, I, I do the same. I have. I tried to be serious. I tried to write when I when I started the JD Kirk pen name. I thought, right, this is going to be really serious because I'd done comedy before that. Sure. Thought this is going to be a really serious, proper police investigation, and I had it all planned out. And then the first line of the book was the total collapse of Duncan Reed's life began with a gate in the arse end of nowhere. <laughs> and when I wrote that, I thought. Damn it. Shit. <laughs> and it, it all went downhill from there, really. So. Oh, we love a good first line. Yeah. We're, we're yeah. obsessed I, with I, them, actually. I am, yeah. I collect first lines. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's a cracker. Absolutely so, cracker. so that, yeah, that, and, that, and that, I think, set the tone of it for me. Because I, I kind of had the plot, but I, like, I didn't feel I quite had that, um, the voice for it at that point. And then I wrote that first line, and I, I immediately thought, I know what this book is. I know where this is going. And, and it just developed over the course of the series. So now, I mean, most of the comments I get with people saying, I was listening to the audiobook and I was in tears of laughter in Tesco's and people thought there was something wrong with me and stuff. So, so it is the characters and the humour is what people keep referencing for me. And I don't think anyone's really said, I love that murder. <laughs> I love the way you cut that guy's head off. Um, which would probably be quite worrying if they did disappear. But yeah, characters and humour is what brings them back. Come for the murder, stay for the characters. That's, oh, that's brilliant, that's brilliant. In terms of being here at London Book Fair, um, which is quite staggeringly it's in its scale. It's huge, it is huge. <laughs> yeah, it's very pink carpet. Uh, yeah, absolutely. This is sort of the, uh, the, the pink zone for the indies, yeah. um, it, it seems. Um, does it bother you that, I mean, we were talking to Simon McCleave just a moment ago, <laughs> and he was saying that it, he, it went up to HarperCollins where he's just signed for one of their offshoots yeah, yeah, yeah. in Avon. And they didn't know who he was. They treated him almost like, yeah. you know, like detritus on the shoe. Do you feel that sort of antipathy from the traditional side of things? I mean, you've worked within yeah, that, that wor- environment. I have, yeah. yeah, I have worked quite extensively. Um, not really. I think almost to me, publishing has kind of flipped. And I think, you know, 
once upon a time in the not too distant past we looked at self publishing as a vanity thing we go, yeah. that's vanity publishing you're doing that because so you can get your name on a book and I think that's really starting to kind of flip around the other way now I look at traditional publishing if I was to do a traditionally published book it would be pure vanity for me it would be oh I want to go to Bath Festival or I want to talk about whatever you know because a lot of, it is difficult for indie oh, authors sure, to, get, is, yeah. to get a lot to the bigger festivals. Yeah. Um, I've been fortunate that I have a lot of contacts at them from my traditional publishing days, so I've been able to do some of the festivals you know, mm. as an indie. Yeah. But just coming in as an indie without that background is really, really difficult. So I think now people who are, are indie publishing are making substantially more money in a lot of cases than traditionally published authors. Yes. yes. But traditionally published authors are going, well, I still have that, that clout of being with the traditional publisher mm. so that vanity element I think is now being more associated with traditional publishing than it is with, with indie publishing which is where a lot of kind of like really interesting new voices are emerging and people are writing books that readers love and the, the um, traditional stuff is, is more about I want to be you know at the, Ch- at the Cheltenham Festival or I want to be in, in the Guardian yeah I want to be um, and more and more indies are doing that though I mean, yeah. I, my books are in the tables and waterstones because I, I um, started working with a um, distributor in Scotland and they work with gardeners and doing print yes. ones through CPI who are just based over there and, um, and it's, it's more work obviously but it means my books are reaching different audiences they're in Morrison's for the first three books we're in Morrison's and they're taking the next ones and so it is possible to do it as yeah. an indie as well that's all opening up more and more um, so I think yeah I think you know five years from now we will look at traditional publishing as vanity publishing yeah I think to an extent and, but the other thing they've done in the, during the pandemic is they've recognised what you and other indie authors had recognised was the power of reaching out digitally yeah and now you know no longer are they thinking of ebook rights or something they, they can yeah. actually you not even sign sometimes yeah that's it a little add on yeah uh, but in terms of their marketing spend on Amazon ads and Facebook yeah. has gone up monumentally yeah. in the last year, hasn't it? And they're kind of parking their tanks on the lawn for yeah, a, for, absolutely, for the likes yeah, of yeah, us. yeah, yeah, yeah. Because a lot of them have some, some very big budgets. But what I always found working with traditional publishers was they had very big budgets for a select few authors. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. and almost nothing for anyone else. Mm. You no, know, like I assumed when I signed with traditional publishers that they would do marketing, and generally speaking, they didn't. They would go, okay, you can do that. You can, you can, you know, do social media. You can do blog tours, and they might help arrange a blog tour. But you do all the write all the content for it. You make the videos or whatever it may be. Um, and the difference was though that if I did that, I had no idea if that was affecting sales or not. No, so I could you go, can't see the well, data, yeah. you know, in six months' time, I'll get a, a royalty statement. They'll tell me the money that I haven't earned, <laughs> the money that, that I haven't paid back, or the advance. And it'll give me an idea of numbers, but it won't tell me when those numbers come no, in. No, so you, you can't change what you're exactly, doing. Exactly, you that's it. Act. So now if I go, right, I'm going to do this thing, and I can immediately look on my dashboard in KDP and go, okay, that sold some books. So I'll do that thing again. Mm. Or if I do it and it doesn't sell some books, I'll say, well, that's a waste of time. I don't have to do that. So it really helps you hone your marketing strategy as well. But, um, yeah, I think they are they're really starting to learn a lot from indies, I think. I think they're realising that we are... Um, massively growing part of the publishing landscape yeah. and they're going well what can we what can we nick from you guys yeah and it's kind of I mean the way we're looking at it is where's the angle next for indies where is the virgin territory in terms of reaching new readers that the traditional publishers aren't moving yeah. into 
uh, and there's a lot of talk about TikTok. Is yeah. that something that would oh, appeal to you? Well, I, you know, everyone kept saying get on TikTok, and I went on TikTok and I did about three videos, and I thought, nah, it's not for me. It's not for me. I think the time, I think it's about, you know, it works for some people, and certain genres is going to work really well. Yeah. But there are, there are so many things that you could do. You could spend, you know, your day ten times over doing different types of marketing, doing different. But ultimately, the best marketing for the next book, or, or best marketing for your current book, is the next book. Yeah. So, so I'm all the first and foremost. I'm about writing books, and I will try and fit some stuff around that. But I think what I've discovered works well for me is just being authentic. So on, yes. on social media, I'm not going, "Hey, look, here's my book," or I'm not trying to join in any any trends or, or fads or anything. I'm just going, "All right, you know, how you doing? <laughs> this is this is this is what's been happening to me," and that works really well on my mailing list. You now I've got a mailing list of about twenty thousand people. Right. Got a seventy percent open rate at the moment, um, and the, and I will get when I put out an email, I will get you know three four hundred emails in that day. People replying, really, wow! And I did a survey, and a staggering number said, "Yeah, would like to get an email from me every day." <laughs> it's like, well, well that's not going to happen. But because <laughs> nice I, I hate getting emails, you know, I hate it. Just yeah, annoys absolutely, me. yeah. But it's, it's reminding yourself that you are not your reader. You know, exactly. You go, exactly. okay, I hate that, but there are hundreds of thousands of people in the world. Who would who love it, and it's going right. So you're the you're the people that I'm I'm trying to to get to. Now, if I put out an email every day, I have no doubt that half my mailing list would unsubscribe immediately. But by God, that half that was left would be the most dedicated fan base yeah. you could hope for. Oh you know? yeah, absolutely. So it is. It's it's finding your reader um, and kind of um, you know bringing your message to it rather than going right. I'm gonna I'm gonna try and drag you in with advertising. It's going yes. to them and going, you know. What's your life like? This is my life. This yeah, is what's been going on. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I find Funny. sending pictures living in the Highlands mm. in my email newsletter. I'll send a different picture of that I've taken when I was like, here's a mountain, you know, here's a stag, <laughs> here's a river, and, and they love, that. and they love it. Yeah, yeah. that's it. So, and, and they feel that bit of a connection to you as well. That's so. Yeah. So Us for is me, normally this is what the cat did today. Or this is yeah, the cat I've done that. We, we got a cat as well, not specifically for newsletter purposes, but <laughs> but it has cropped up in the newsletter a few times. Uh, she's vital to her. You know, if she ever passes uh, on, we're yeah. in trouble. Well, there was one newsletter where I was talking about that the cat wasn't very well, and I got no. emails saying. We really hope the cat's going to be okay. Yeah. You're going to take it to the vet. We'll be strung that out over a few weeks. <laughs> so, in terms of um, where you are now and where you see things going in the in the future, in terms of you're going to keep up the, the, the release rate, is that something you can um, sustain? Or, I mean, I, I, I probably could. I currently put out last few years. I put out about six books a year, so I don't wow. book every two months. Um, and I'm I'm kind of slowing down a little bit. I'm, I'm taking a making a conscious decision to slow down a bit. I slow down to you know four books a year I'm not going to do, do less than mm. that at the moment mm. but um, we're also looking we're kind of branching out through the, the publishing company we've got a, a romance um, right. uh, arm of the publishing company starting soon and that's my wife and I kind of come up with the story together Ooh, and brilliant. we got a, we got a ghostwriter to do like a first draft and then we're taking that and then we're going to kind of okay. rip it to bits and, and oh, do it in our voice and do, yeah. but it was getting that I didn't have the time to get that sort of bare bones story down Especially when it was an experiment, because yeah. no, it might yeah. be that nobody reads it, you know. So, how much um, research do you do on the romance genre uh, to, to get on top of that? None. <laughs> <laughs> Just, uh, I think. See, the thing is, and, and we all talk about every genre having its own tropes, and they do. That's yeah, true. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But every story is essentially the same. Every story is, you know, within a certain kind of um, range of being mm. exactly like every other story that's ever happened. So, once you've got a decent understanding of story. Mm. 
it's easy enough to adapt that to different to different genres I think so um, and my wife's read a lot more romance than I have which is none. <laughs> um, you said the same with crime, though. Yeah, I know that's it exactly. Yeah, so I just yeah. yeah, just guess guess the plot of things. Just go for it. Um, although, what speaking of guessing, actually, what's always funny is I get emails quite regularly from people in the police who say, "Oh, you've you've nailed the uh, the procedure stuff. You've really got that." Like, I've just guessed police procedure for, for, for police Scotland for the last three years, um, but they go, "Oh, you you nailed that." And, and similarly, there's a character in my books who's so over the top, ridiculously awful. Like and he's a, he was a detective chief superintendent and like he was written to be you know like that American sort of you've got twenty four hours I'm taking your badge that, yeah, that yeah, horrible right. chief yeah 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 it was like him but like an exaggerated version like to a point that this person could never exist <laughs> and the number of emails that I get people saying I've worked with him I've worked <laughs> yeah. with that guy and it's like well complain to HR you can't you can't work under that. Um, so yeah, I completely forgot what the question was there. I just, I just got sidetracked on this. Oh no, I mean just you know that release rate. So yes, yeah, yes. I, yeah, that's. I mean, it's one of those things where I mean we're looking at our, our list, and some people are coming to us with the first three, four ready. Yeah, knowing that that's where the market's gone. Yeah, absolutely. In the sense that's that you've got yeah. to keep the momentum. Yeah, and you just say, as you say, the best marketing is the is the next book. Yeah. Um, but that's quite difficult for a lot of people to to, to sort of get their heads around yeah. and, and then be that productive. So, in terms of your methodology, uh, how how often do you you know do you bolt yourself to the to yeah, the yeah every day really? So yeah. basically, I use well working through traditional publishing for ten years, never knowing if I could pay my bills next month. Any work that came in, I would jump on it. So sure. a publisher would say, "We need this twenty thousand word kids book written by Friday." Yeah, you do. And I would go, "Okay." And if that meant not sleeping for two days, fine, I would do that because um, that's what was needed. So I can apply that same mindset now. I go, well, this is this is a job, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. My job is to write books. I can't sit and wait for the muse to strike. Mm. Um, so I use software called Pacemaker. Right. And I go, okay, so I, I, this book is going to be roughly 90,000 words and I have until you know this date to do it. And Pacemaker goes, okay, you need to do this number of words every day. So if I don't hit that number of words, and I usually do most of my writing in the morning, yeah. if I haven't hit that number of words, then I don't leave my desk until I have done. Or if I have to do something else, I have to come back and make sure I hit those words. And there will be days when like, things go wrong. Mm. Like yesterday, I had to replace my bus service from the Highlands to get here, <laughs> and I had planned to write 7,000 words on the train. That didn't happen, obviously. <laughs> no. But when Pacemaker says you have to write 2,000 words a day, I will aim for 3,000 words a day. So I've always got kind of words in hand Mm. that, I mean, if something does go wrong, I'm okay. I don't have to panic too much because of my head of schedule. So right because of yesterday, I'm now pretty much on schedule because I had about 7,000 words spare. (laughs) Um, So now I need to go back and write 3,000. Well, I've actually written, before I got here, I wrote 3,000 words this morning before I came to the... Oh, that is impressive. Before 9 o'clock? Before 9 o'clock, That's very impressive. My God. You're looking at me they're all thinking, rubbish, like they're all right, you're going to get me pacemaker, <laughs> you aren't you? pacemaker thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you're absolutely right, you know, because my work in progress has been sat there for about four years, so... No, it's good, it, and, you, and it does lovely graphs and all that, oh, and it right. says, oh, this is how far behind that, you are. And that really appeals to me, so, yeah, yeah that's going to work for me. You right. don't like graphs and stuff, do you? No, I love, I love anything, <laughs> you know, 
when I'm wearing the, the old watch and checking how many steps oh, I've taken yes, and all yeah. that stuff. Yeah, yeah exactly. That Absolutely, would work yeah, for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, colourful stuff. Colourful Can data. Can you get your watch to say, you, you shouldn't be walking, you should be at your computer writing 2,000 words? <laughs> that yeah. would be a good, that'd be a good add-on. Get that for the... Yeah, yeah it's an app that just shouts at you to sit down, <laughs> type. <laughs> when you're asleep, an alarm in the morning, get up, you need to write now. Yeah. Well, that's why, because I, I, when I was doing, especially when I was doing the kids' books, it was like, sometimes I was working on three books at the same time, you know, for different publishers. And I was like, okay, I need to split my day up so these don't overlap. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't, I don't suddenly write the wrong thing in the wrong book. <laughs> so it would be, there was, a, there was a spell I would get up at six o'clock every morning. There was a spell I would actually get up at five o'clock every morning for a while. And I thought, I did that at five o'clock for about three months because I thought I'll adapt to it eventually. Didn't happen. I spent no. every morning I'd wake up crying. There was that alarm going off. I was like, no, it can't be now. But I put my alarm on the other side of the room. And oh, if so you, you have to go if you over get up there. to get it and see, you know, but see the time you've taken like two steps, that resistance has fallen away a little bit. And if you grab the phone or the alarm, walk through to the kitchen, the thought of going back to bed is then gone. And I'll go, right, okay, I'm now switched into work mode. So for me, it was about those initial get up, get moving. And once you're moving, it's much easier to go, right, it's time to write. I'm in trouble here. Yeah, well, I'm in I trouble. can see that look, that look <laughs> yeah, past there. Yeah. Oh, it was frightening. Yeah, truly frightening. Um, when you're here at the show, are you, you going to get about and talk to, uh, or are you stuck with yeah, your, no, behind I, the plinth? We can, we can kind of wander at will. They're not, they're not holding us hostage. No, no. <laughs> you yeah, well, you, you hear all sorts of things about Amazon. Thankfully, you do so. hear, you do hear <laughs> terrible things, yeah. Funnily, that, that's one of the things, with traditional publishers, we're always told Amazon hates authors. Amazon's the enemy. Amazon, you know, Amazon mistreats authors, and I've had a bloody lovely time since <laughs> I moved to KDP. I can't, I can't fault it at all. I realise, I go, okay, well, they they pay me every month. Yes. Whereas you pay me twice a year. Yeah. And you never tell me what I've. In fact, often you don't even do that. You know what I mean? You'll pay me in thirds, and you'll do. Oh, we're holding that bit back, and we're not giving you that until next time. You yeah. Do. So but I know every month how much money is coming in, and it's, it's makes life much easier. Yeah, so, it's completely transparent. Isn't so it? yeah, so I, I can't fault from an author's perspective. I can't fault. You're not having. I mean, because I was going to pick it up with with the, with the main man here. Mm-hmm. You know, occasionally there'll be a bump in the roads with us where they'll say you haven't got the contract for a certain thing, and then you cancel, and you take yeah. it down for a bit. And have you not had any? Of those I had issues? I had one issue, um, and it was the the sixth book in my DCI Logan series. And it happened the night before the seventh book was due out. They'd emailed me earlier in the week and they'd said, um, yeah, this is, I can't remember what rules they said it was breaking, but the, the, the information they had, it was a completely different book. They'd sent me the, they sent it to the wrong person. It was like, no, no, <laughs> yeah, right. this isn't my book. This, this, this is a book you flagged up as an issue. I have no idea what it is. And the title was there and everything. It wasn't, it's like, this isn't, this isn't it. Yeah. You know, this is, and they went, okay, oh, yeah, sorry about that. That's, yeah, obviously nothing's going to happen. Don't worry. And the night before the book was due, it got taken off Amazon. It got taken yeah. down. And so obviously they said, yeah, nothing will happen, don't worry. But I hadn't told the people responsible for taking the book down not to do it. So the book vanished. Um, and I got, but fortunately, I had been, you know, I, I know, know Darren from KDP anyway, so I was able to go on to him quite quickly. Mm. And he, he resolved it. But um, any other issues I've had, the, the help desk has been pretty good at resolving it. I haven't had anything that's been disastrous in any way. No, we've had a few bumps, but, you know, it's got... Better recently. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I've, had, I've had far more bumps with traditional publishing. One of my, mm. one of my books through HarperCollins, they, they published thirteen thousand copies and they had my name wrong in the front, <laughs> so they had to then pulp, pulp them. it. 
so you know the that's ed- a publisher's every, nightmare every industry has has issues um, uh, yeah so um, yeah so these things happen you know that was a bad day at the office for someone yeah <laughs> no, what's, what's worse is that then um, there was also it was that and there was also issues inside so the the top of page 17 was on page 18 and all the um, all the apostrophes had been replaced with double quotation marks. So it all gone terribly wrong. I just, I just, I was the one that spotted this. I got my author copies and went, uh, "There's some problems here." <laughs> and they said, "Okay, don't worry. We're going to do an emergency reprint. It'll be done in three days." Three days later, I was I was doing a, a launch event, six days, and three days later, no books. And they said, "Oh, there's been a bit of a hold up. It's going to be three more days, but they'll be there for the launch event." When the books finally turned up. It was the third edition, and it turns out they'd reprinted the same file again, thirteen thousand times, and had to pop those as well. So by the time the first the first copy was on the shelves, they'd popped twenty six thousand copies. I actually feel quite sick. Look at them. Can you I'm imagine? And we're worried that we've got problems in the first two hundred that yeah. we run. Yeah. Wow. I imagine somebody got fired. I don't know. You, well, you think I so? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. But you think once you spot that problem, delete that file. Yeah. Don't go. We'll leave that around, just tempting you, yeah. just in case. With wow. a very similar I hope they file name. A lesson from that. <laughs> totally. But totally. they'd also put that the whole PDF available on their website six months previously. It was supposed to be in a private section of the website to share with other international kind of branches, and they put it publicly available on the website, so it was free oh, to read no. for six months. No. Um, so absolute disaster made of it. You I suddenly I feel found, very much more com- yeah, I, much more competent. Well, I found the bigger the publisher, the worse they were. I found I worked with big publishers, small publishers. And I, I never had any issues with, with small publishers. It was like Nosy Crow who were down there. Yes. Stripes yeah. and, and, and brilliant, very professional, never had any issues at all. Mm. The bigger the publisher, the less they seemed to care about the individual books. Yeah. Mm. Especially HarperCollins had just cared about David Valiums at that point. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. But the, the less they cared about the individual books and, and the more these sort of errors slipped through. I think it also depends on who you work with because I, I worked at Oxford University Press. And, mm. But my boss drummed into me so even though you've checked it five times, every single time the yeah. author's name ISBN the title the most important things even though you know that it's correct still check it I wrote a book series for OUP actually oh did you um, <laughs> it was called Guzillas and it was like uh, about these little green slimy guys it was a kind of ghost written thing OUP came to me and said do you want to do this and I went are you going to pay me money yeah. And they said, "Yep." And I said, "Then I'll do it." <laughs> that is that is my quality control. Is like, will you pay me to do it? Yes. Then I, I will whatever is required. Wow, wow. I've got to ask. Um, in terms of your appeal, is it mainly UK, or you, are you have you hit the the states in any uh, sort of significance? I would say for the crime fiction, mm. it's about sixty um, percent UK, sixty five percent UK, maybe. Yeah. Um, and then probably about twenty percent US. Australia are really big into it. Um, Canada, yeah, to an extent as well. I think Australia and Canada have a big Scottish connection. They like as well. the Highlands, don't yeah. They? The books that we've got yeah. that have yeah. those connections do yeah. well over there. Um, yeah, but yeah, predominantly UK. Right. Yeah, and um, I mean, some people chase that, that American market because it's yeah, so huge. I, but, I, but I haven't bothered. The space team was bigger in America. The, the comedy sure. sci-fi stuff that did better in the US than it does does in the UK. But there are there are more than enough readers in the UK to have a, a very successful career, a very rewarding career, without having to worry about you know other markets. Because I think there's a big expat community in, in the US and in, in, in Canada and all that who who are interested in the Scottish thing. So so that does bring some readers in. But I've never marketed over. I've never run a, an ad in America. I've never run an ad in you know an Amazon mm. or Facebook ad over there. I just do just do UK. 
Well, we ought to bring this to, to a thing. Have you got a random question? I haven't, because we weren't going to do the random No, that's questions. true. What we normally do is we have a I heard about random this. question. I heard about this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we haven't got one for you, so we're gonna, oh. we'll have to get you back well, again. Some okay. of the it's not really random, but it's just something that's come into my head just now. Oh, it's random then. What is your favourite cocktail? Uh, my favourite cocktail is, I don't even know if it class is a cocktail, it's a white Russian. Yeah. Because I, I watched The Big Lebowski when yeah. I was about, um, what was it, about 20? I think I saw it. And I just thought it was the best film I'd ever seen. And I became obsessed with white Russians at that point. <laughs> Although I was on a tour with the Scottish Book Trust um, around Manchester, weirdly. And we went to uh, the hotel, we to the bar and the hotel we were staying at. And I, we were all getting drinks. And I asked for a white Russian. And the, the, the woman behind the bar looked really offended. And she was, it turns out, just a white Russian. <laughs> she thought I was, she thought I was making some sort of... She couldn't understand what I was saying. Yeah. Uh, whether I was kind of, you know making some derogatory remark about it or something but it's like, no no it's a drink I have to, and I had to talk as we what the drink was so so yeah white Russian is probably my, my cocktail of choice Good. although I had one recently yeah. going off on a tangent it okay. was a bubblegum a bubblegum daiquiri Ooh. and it was like a, you know slush puppy this yeah, yeah, yeah. it was like that you'd love that but bubblegum oh it was amazing it just tasted like, like liquid bubblegum <laughs> And it didn't, because as I get older, I find I'd rather things didn't taste of alcohol. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I kind of go. That had the effect. What? Yeah, I'd rather I'd rather have that, but not the effect the next day. Because yeah, my no, hangovers no. at the moment kind of last like four days, three days of which I spent crying in a corner. Yeah. yeah. So um, yeah. I think kind of something that's like just a bit you know fruity or it doesn't taste too strongly of alcohol. That's what I kind of gravitate towards these days. We had a bit of a night last night, and it certainly had an impact. Well, the thing yeah. is, we didn't drink that much, but we were both lying in bed at midnight getting up. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to when you hit a certain age, do you? No, no. no. It's, you My know. son, he's, he's 19, and he's out. Perfect. He lives in Edinburgh now, and he's, like, hitting the town every night, and he's going... Like, I messaged him at, like, 9 o'clock one night. He says, what are you up to tonight? He says, I don't know yet. I might go out. And he's like, what do you mean you don't know yet? It's 9 o'clock at night. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, that's right. Like you should, mine, you should yeah. be, like, two-thirds of the way through the evening by now yeah. and thinking about heading home in a taxi. <laughs> Yeah, but my son's exactly the same yeah. when he's at uni. He's like, you know. The idea of starting a night at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock. So what are you talking about? Yeah. I'm brushing my teeth then. Yeah, the, 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 I don't know if you go out drinking with him because my son will, you know, I'll be nursing a pint. Yeah. So I can probably manage a couple. I used to be able to do 10. <laughs> but of course, he can still do that. And, yeah. and it's all this sort of elbows out yeah you, you know your spent force as a human you yeah, know you can't yeah, you so can't yeah. knock it back anymore. my son won't even be seen with me in public <laughs> yeah, right <laughs> fair enough <laughs> but yeah my because it's funny because i'm doing all the kids books i would go i've gone to all the schools locally and um the, when my son went to high school he'd meet all the kids from the other school and they were like oh we, we've met your dad he's really cool and my son very quickly set them straight <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on that on that front so um yeah he him and my daughter and my wife have been very good at keeping my feet firmly on the ground <laughs> at all times oh it's fantastic well thank you so much for share, sharing so much time with us you and need to have a white really, question now I think. yeah I think that's yeah, what I'm we, we really learned a lot so uh, Barry thank you so much for, thanks for, for having for me the time. Good to thank, you. You. thank cheers. you cheers well we've got a kind of random question in there good one cocktails yeah and inspired no by the pink carpet absolutely well done for thinking on your feet on that one I have to say so we were talking in uh, the first part of the podcast about um, us being introverts and also about your legs giving you some pain. Oh, it's been awful. Well, we stood opposite a banner that is advertising a book, Yoga for Introverts. I think that's for you. <laughs> You're right, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it might well be. There's also a book for a biography of Max Verstappen. Oh, well, you keep looking at that, don't you? I think you want me to buy it for you. Yeah, but you can't get it here. So, no, anyway. you can, the books are here, but you can't buy them. <laughs> exactly, exactly. 
Listen, tomorrow uh, our podcast is going to feature a number of uh, interviews. We have something lined up for you, which is a little bit off beam in terms of not Pineapple Man. Uh, but one of the smaller independent publishers here who specialise in books about climbing, uh, which I've, uh, I've had contact with them in the past because they've asked me to do a couple of audio books in the past. I've never done it yet. But, uh, never done it before? No, never done that before. Uh, but we're also keen to speak to some of the other uh, members of the IPG, the Independent Publishers Guild, who are uh, some of them, are, you know, like Boldwood Books are selling quadrillions of books, and Jack Aranda are changing. Yeah, the, they're doing the, brilliantly, aren't they? They are. I mean, you know, they are changing the demographic of who writes, you know, uh, popular fiction uh, because they are uh, exclusively staffed by people from the Afro-Caribbean community. So we'll talk to them. Uh, look forward to speaking to them but we've also got one or two other things special surprises for you and of course we will have Uncle Bob we've got uh, uh, dinner date to, to go to head off to we do with one of my I'm, oldest friends I'm going friends. out with two men you <laughs> again I went out with two men last you night you did I'm you going did, out with yeah. two men again well this time we won't be so much BBC reminiscing as you had to put up with yesterday as we went to Television Centre and see the, how they've revamped that um, but uh, yeah we're heading into uh, the west end of London for, for dinner and, uh, that sounds so posh when you yeah, say it does, that. Yeah, yeah, right. Into the west. It, it's, west. It's a decent Lebanese, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> um, so uh, we'll look forward to speaking to you again tomorrow. And uh, we'd like to thank you for joining us here on the Hobcast Book Show. Don't forget to go to our website, www.hobeck.net, for details of all the books that we're trying to sell here at the, the Rights Festival, uh, part of the London Book Fair. But uh, from myself, Adrian Hobart. And myself, Rebecca Collins. Thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we wish you, well, we'll see a creative, creative day. Week, creative few hours <laughs> uh, between podcasts. We'll speak to you again tomorrow. Bye bye. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.